Last time, uh, we closed with the question on page, question three on page 33. How have you learned that God really does care about his people? And I shared with you the story, my story, of how I learned that God cares when I was in that accident uh, in Tallahassee and how God moved and worked in that situation. But one of the things that uh, we, 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 we need to be mindful of is God is not going to exhibit his power unless we are willing to be obedient to move according to his directives. Okay? According to God's directives, God will not move. And sometimes we are reluctant to be obedient because we know sometimes what it entails. It entails us doing some things that we really don't want to do. All right? And so we are reluctant to move. And uh, in my case, uh, uh, even though there were some discouragements, we were willing to move according to God's directives. And God allowed that situation to happen to demonstrate His power and how much He cares for us. Does anybody have a story of how God cared for you in a particular situation that you want to share? Anybody? Something God did for you in a situation that you know it, it only it could have been God who did it. <laughs> He's always doing it. Because this morning, he wake me up. That's right. And he put me in this wonderful place we have up here, but we don't know this wonderful. Walk along this dangerous road. We must be careful. Amen. Okay, Mark had a definite purpose in uh, in, in in his writings. Uh, uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he had a definite purpose for including in his Gospel the account of Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He had a purpose in communicating that story. First, it was part of his emphasis on, on Jesus' absolute authority. One of the things that he wanted to point out, first of all, that God, Jesus Christ, was had absolute authority in doing what he did. He had all the power to be able to accomplish what he did. Mark already had shown Jesus' authority over, over demons and, and diseases in chapter 1. He showed how he had all the power over these demons. If you look at Mark chapter 1, someone read verses 32 and 33. Mark chapter 1. Verse 32 and 33. And that even when the sun did set, they brought on him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. Okay, so they, people in the town knew of his authority to be able to heal, no matter what kind of sickness it was. And it says the people brought many sick and demon-possessed people. And the whole town gathered around the door. So it was more like a spectacle. They knew what he was capable of doing. And then uh, verse uh, 40 and 42, same chapter, Mark chapter 1. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him. And said unto him, I will be thou clean. 
And as soon as he had spoken immediately, the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Okay, instantly, as soon as Jesus touched him, the leprosy was instantly healed. It was instantly healed. The leprosy disappeared. And then we also see that Jesus had authority not over only over demons and diseases, but also over uh, he had the authority to forgive sins. Boy, and that was a that was a no-no for the, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees at that time because they didn't believe nobody but God could do that, and they didn't, they didn't think Jesus was God. Um, Mark chapter two, uh, the first twelve verses uh, shows how Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Uh, read verse 1 to 12, please. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was not gone. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. And they hadn't. They hadn't. First time they'd seen anything like that in their lives, and they were stunned. And so we see Jesus exercising his, his authority over demons and diseases and over paralysis. And so here in Mark, we see Jesus exercising his, his authority over nature. And, and so the second thing, uh, which is equally important as the first, or the first purpose that Mark wanted to convey about Jesus was he wanted to encourage and ensure the recipients of his gospel. He wanted to encourage and assure them of what Jesus was capable of doing. Mark was writing to the church that had faced a lot of opposition and hardship. And in those particular circumstances, it's hard to think of anyone who could do anything to help. Many believers may well have been asking, does Jesus care? that we are perishing? Similar question that the disciples were asking. Can he help us? And if so, why doesn't he do something? And that is a question that permeates our minds often when we go through difficulties and trial trials and, and storms, all kinds of storms. 
Mark's account assured hard-pressed Christians that Jesus was present, first of all, and that he cared about their circumstances. Do you believe Jesus cared about all of your circumstances? Yes. Every single one. He doesn't miss anything. He cares about every single thing that we go through. So look at the question four on page 33. How can we reconcile the truth of Jesus' power with the fact that he doesn't always calm the storm? How do we reconcile the truth of Jesus' power with the fact that he doesn't always calm the storm? Sometimes he wants us to go through the storm so that he can demonstrate that his power is like, like no other. But we don't see it that way, do we? Oh, no. We don't see it that way. Okay, we see it as, Lord, why are you letting me go through this again? When God is saying, hold on, I want to show you something. I want to show you how powerful I really am. And that's one of the reasons why he doesn't come to storm. Because he wants, you see, God is, the whole purpose for God is that God might be glorified. And God is never going to be glorified if he doesn't put us through circumstances and situations where his power is revealed. So that people could say, well, God be the glory. Amen. You know, you're not going to get glory. The power is not going to be revealed. There you go. When he, you don't allow him to go to do what he wants to do in your life. Dr. Evans offers some guidance and for answering this question on the third paragraph of your study guide, page 33. Notice what he says. It is precisely in those times when we feel so weak and helpless that Jesus' power is most visibly strong. God does some of his best work in those moments when we don't think he's working at all. That's when he does some of his best work. We don't even think that God is doing something. But he's actually working. Sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom so that we will discover that he is the rock at the bottom. Okay, and we don't realize that sometimes. Okay, why, Lord, do I, am I hitting rock bottom like this? Because I'm right at the bottom, I'm the rock that you, you're going to land on that's going to be holding you up, that's going to be protecting you and sustaining you. And then secondly, sometimes God allows you to get into a situation only He can fix, so that you will see Him fix it. How many times have we seen that happen? Yeah. We go through a situation that only God could fix. And we know it's got to be God, because nobody else could do it. You know, I was on a plane one time, a little five-seater Aztec Piper. <laughs> And uh, boy, that was a noisy plane. And just me and the pilot. I was uh, working for Royal Bank that time, and I was going to, they'd send me to, to Long Island to carry some cash to the branch there because the branch is low on cash. And so they chartered this plane. And we were flying, going, and um, we, uh, I, saw, I was sitting right behind the pilot. And his air started to turn red. And I said, boy, I hope this guy is not getting a heart attack or something. You know, and uh, I asked him, is everything okay? And uh, he said, uh, there was an indicator light that supposed to tell him that the landing gear was up. But the light wasn't saying that the landing gear was up. And we had just taken off. We'd already gone to Long Island, dropped off the cash, and we were headed back to Nassau. And so I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, if we continue to fly at the speed 
and at the altitude that we are going, the pressure in the high altitude will rip the landing gears off. So that when we get to Nassau, we won't be able to land because there'll be no landing gear. So I said, well, what do you do in a situation like this? Uh, of course, my situation was pray. Because even though it was just he and the, uh, me and him on the plane, God was there. I know God was there because I prayed before I went on that plane. We know that God was there. And uh, so we flew over uh, and he radioed uh, the airport uh, in a part of Long Island to, to do, do a visible check. And they said, yeah, the landing gear is up. Apparently the indicator light had malfunctioned. The bulb had blown. Simple as that. The bulb had blown. Right? And so we knew that the landing gear was up. <coughs> but that's the kind of situation that only God could fix. Okay? We know we get in situations where only God can fix it. And uh, we commit it to Him. Whatever the case... You can trust his work is motivated by his heart of love for you and for me. God's work is always motivated by his heart. Romans 8.28, what does it say? What does it say? Hmm? We should know that one well, from by heart, right? Okay. Does it say some things? Everything. All means everything. Okay, but sometimes we, how we react when certain things happen, we act as if God only God God only can handle some things, and other things is out of His control. He can't He can't deal with this one. I need to find somebody else to help me with this one. But you just quote that verse wrong. You don't quote the last part of it. I just said the last part of this. Oh, I did. They say, oh, God, everything you know, and they don't quote that lot. For them that are walking according to His purpose. According to His will. His will, right. And that's one of the reasons why God doesn't respond the way people want Him to respond. Because sometimes what people just do, what, what the, the situation and circumstances that are uh, going on is not according to God's will in, in terms of how that person is conducting their lives. Uh, God is not going to be there to to deliver us when we make mistakes because of our own foolishness and disobedience to His Word. Okay, remember, um, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If God is telling you to walk, exactly. If God is telling you to walk straight and you walk crooked, He's not going to deliver you from the circumstances that resulted from your crooked walk because your crooked walk resulted from your disobedience to His word. Amen. Same thing with the law. The law says if you run the traffic light, you get a ticket. You have to. You have a penalty. God operates the same, and God will not violate His laws. For anybody, Amen. he won't do it. Okay, and we've seen that in the lives of many of his children. Verse 39 of the text Jesus got up and rebuked the wind. The Greek term rebuke is a strong word that means reprove, it means censure, it means to censure severely, it means to admonish or to sternly warn. And that's what he did to the winds and the waves. Then Jesus said to the sea, silence, be still. In other words, behave yourself, calm down. 
The Greek word translated silence has the sense of being hushed or calm. It means to be muzzled. We know what it means when we muzzle an animal so that they can't make noise or carry on, right? At Jesus' command, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The calm was just as great as the storm was. And that's why it was so impacting. He was God's agent in creation. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, what does it say? Colossians 1 16. Uh, when my memory that in all things he might have the preeminence? Is that the one? No. For through him, go ahead. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So we see why the storm, the nature responded the way it did. Because it was responding to its creator. When he says, silence, be still. Nature had no alternative other than to obey. Because they were hearing the command of the creator, the one who made them. And he was saying, behave yourself. It's like you having a dog that's carried, that, that is bad and vicious. And, and he obeys your every command and he's carrying on bad. And the people who he's around, who's around him is upset and they're scared. And you said to him, shut up. And he stops. That's what Jesus did here with the storm. The storm immediately recognized who he was. And he exercises power over creation. Now in the background of this event, maybe Old Testament accounts in which God has revealed himself as sovereign over the sea. For example, we see uh, Psalm 89 and verse 9, where it says, You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. That's an Old Testament passage that talks about God's sovereignty over the seas. And then we have uh, how he commanded the Red Sea. Remember that? Yeah. He commanded the Red Sea so the children of Israel could cross over safely. Uh, Psalm 106 and verse 9. He commanded the Red Sea to dry up. Boy, that's powerful. And one of the things that, I, I, that really uh, I get out of this was he didn't just part the Red Sea because you know when you go into the sea everything is under the under the sea is, is mushy and soft and because the water's covering it and the water contributes to that, that 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 kind of atmosphere right but he commanded the sea to dry up to dry up so that the children of Israel could cross the desert cross through that water on dry ground but there was a miracle in that event one of you missed it when, when, the, when the Pharaoh and the chariots came through, what happened? They were right behind the children of Israel, right? They became muddy and they stuck their chariot wheels stuck. See, but that's the miracle we miss. The children of Israel walked through on dry ground. Right after the children of Israel passed through, God turned, returned the conditions of the ocean to what it normally should be. Soft, mucky. See, the Bible says the chariot wheels sunk and started to break off. That's a miracle within a miracle that we missed. We don't think about it like that. Brother Randy, someone put a video on Facebook the other day showing those, they found wheels in the bottom of the dead. They found old rusted up big chariot wheels and they're proven. But those are the chariots. Find what happened. Exactly, exactly. You see, so don't miss that, that statement that he makes in Cham, uh, that the psalmist makes. 
in Psalm 106 verse 9. He commanded the sea to dry up, not just the waters to pass. We focus on the waters party. But the earth, the, the oceans dried up so that they could walk through. And then Psalm 107, verse 29 and 30, uh, he wrote, uh, the psalmist wrote that God stilled the storm and hushed the sea so that the waves grew quiet and the people reached a safe harbor. Jesus stilling the storm seems to connect with these accounts in the Old Testament and connect and indicate that that God is able to accomplish what the Bible says exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask, think, or even imagine. Some things that God is capable of doing we can't imagine. Jesus got up from his slumber and he spoke to the sea. Peace be still. Two brief commands. Peace be still and the storm obeyed. The word for peace literally means hold your peace. And Jesus told the storm to be quiet. To stop making noise. To hush up his fuss. That's what he was saying. Similar to what a parent would say to an unruly toddler who was misbehaving. Settle down. And it did it. Hmm? They don't say it like that. They don't, they don't say it like that. Thunder <laughs> and lightning may be chasing each, each other all around. The wind may be blowing unexpectedly and in unpleasant circumstances in, in our lives. But nothing looks right. Nothing looks promising. But it's precisely in those times that Jesus' power trumps the storm. We can depend on it. And so the story's conclusion in verse 40 to 41 reveals an important question the disciples ask in response to Jesus' actions. Which of these, look, at you, you have some images on your handout, right? See those four images? Which of those images on page 35? Which of those images connect with your deeper fears? Which of those images connect with your, in other words, which one of those images reflect your deepest fear? See them? What are they? What's the first one? Surgery. Surgery, okay. What's the other one? Okay, that's poisonous insect or creature. What's the other one? Huh? Okay, health issues, that's a scale, right? Yeah. Health issues, overweight, obesity. And the other one? Yeah, the grave. Uh, so the question is, which of those images connect with your deepest? Which one of those images that you fear the most? That, have deep, deep, that brings about deep fear in your heart? And how can you more fully incorporate Jesus into your thoughts for handling your fears? Based on our text and what we looked at. How can you incorporate Jesus into your situation? There's something to think about. Okay, the next passage, uh, next verses, verses uh, 40 and 41. Let's have someone read those verses, those two verses, 40 and 41. Okay, 
They've been with Jesus all this time, and now they're seeing a part of him that they never thought they saw before. And they said, who's this fellow? You know, ever had the experience of somebody when they did something unexpected that you never expected them to do, and you said, boy, I thought I knew him. Boy, oh, I thought I knew him. Well, that's the same reaction the disciples did here. They've been with Jesus all this time. Disciples have asked Jesus a question with the force of a rebuke. Don't you care we're going to die? Okay, that's a kind of a rebuke type of question. Because of what they were going through, they actually feared that they were going to die. And after rebuking and stilling the wind, Jesus rebuked them with uh, two counter questions. First he asked, why are you fearful? Why are you so afraid? The Greek term for fearful is always used in a bad sense in the New Testament. Always. Always. It can express the idea of timidity, but it can also carry the stronger sense of cowardice. You're a coward. The disciples had observed Jesus' power miraculously displayed. Thus, they should have trusted him rather than panicking. Better mm -hmm. Because this thing was happening to, to, to the disciple on the, in the boat, and Jesus was there. I cannot, I have that printed in my life. I cannot believe that he was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact, the fact that he was asleep tells us that he, who he was. He only showed them that he was asleep. And they believed Sister Rosie still don't believe Jesus was asleep. He was asleep. He was no sleep. He just come up from the, on the back of the boat, on down there, and as he got down there, the bread come up. So you believe he's pretending to be asleep? Yes, he was pretending that he was asleep. He was just in their faith. You know, the Bible says he was asleep since the rose. That is a that's a that's a ingrained. Okay. He did that for a reason. Mm, okay. That they will know that he is God and God alone. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the first question he asked was, "Why are you afraid?" The second question was. The, the disciple had seen his power, they had seen what he was capable of, and so he asked them, you know, based on all that you've seen me do, I'm on this boat with you, why would you be so afraid? Do you think I would be on this boat and allow something bad to happen to you? That was, that was the, the, the implication uh, behind his first question. And then hard on the heels of his, his uh, first question uh, about the disciples' fear came his question about their lack of faith. Okay, do you still have no faith? In other words, they had demonstrated a particular point in time where they had no faith. And you, said, well, you, you fellas still don't have no faith? I mean, all this time I've been, been, been with you and all these things I've been doing and showing you and you still don't have any faith? So that's the second rebuke. And this is, uh, that is, had they not arrived at the point of trusting him completely? After all they had done, and there are many believers who are like that today. No matter how much God has done, not only in their lives, but allow them to witness in the lives of others, they still don't trust Him completely. They still haven't come to the point where they could trust Him implicitly, and that's where these disciples were. Imply was a charge that they should have done so. Jesus, Jesus did not indicate 
are the object of their faith. He didn't indicate that. One view is that the disciples should have had faith in his ability to work miracles because they'd seen him done miracles over and over. A second approach is that Jesus meant faith in God rather than in Jesus. Jesus probably had a mind, had in mind faith in God's saving power displayed in Jesus' action of rescue. And so Jesus' questions presented the truth that faith and fear cannot coexist. Faith and fear cannot hang out together. Put another way. Genuine commitment to Jesus includes consistent trust in Him. Consistent means continually, ongoing, with no breaks in between. We always trust in Him no matter what. His care for His own and His presence and His power is what it means to have a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Jesus' power to calm the raging storm terrified the disciples as well. Okay, literally, they feared a greater fear. Okay, the Greek word translated terrified is a different term from the one Jesus used in verse 40 for the disciples' fear. The word in verse 41 can have the idea of severe fright astonishment or amazement and reverential awe and respect. That's the second fear. In a real sense, all three responses likely were present. Certainly the disciples were awed and amazed by what they saw Jesus do and the display of his power. They, they feared the storm's fierceness and his power. But Jesus infinitely, Jesus' power was infinitely greater and he demonstrated that by what he did in commanding uh, the storm to calm down, uh, which had a greater fear in their hearts than anything else. And so the disciples asked another, one another, who is this fellow? We thought we knew him. Who is this guy? They marveled because of what he was capable of doing. They don't know of anybody that they can think of who could say to the storm and the winds, y'all calm down, be quiet. And it happened. And so all this time they did, they'd been with Jesus, they'd never seen that part of his deity. And that's why they were saying, who is this fellow? <laughs> no, they didn't. Okay, uh, the third, uh, look at the third paragraph on page 34 of your study guide. The story is told of a flight that hit some unusual turbulence tossing an airplane side to side in strong gusts of wind. Lightning hit nearby, no one felt safe, no one except for one small child. He sat preoccupied with his notebook, in his, with his notebook and pen. To look at him, you never would have guessed he was on a plane in the middle of a storm. A passenger nearby asked the young boy, aren't you afraid? He just looked up from his paper for a moment and smiled and said, nah. My dad is the pilot. <laughs> he trusts his dad. He trusts his dad. He trusts his dad. I'm on Peter and them couldn't trust Jesus mm. to know that he was good. All right? Mm. They didn't need to go to schools. When you know who is in the cockpit, That's right. even the turbulence may be okay. See, when I told you the story about that plane, when I was on that plane, I wasn't afraid because I knew who was on that plane. It may have been me and the pilot visibly, but God was there. God was there. Who and 
when and who is in the cockpit when turbulence can be okay. Because when life seems out of control, it's simply out of your control, but not out of God's control. Knowing who sits in the, at the control panel ought to usher in a heart of peace and tranquility. Okay, you know who's on, at the control. And so peace means different things to different people. <laughs> but the peace Jesus offers is like no other peace. Remember Jesus said in the Bible, peace I leave with you. Not as the world give it, give I unto you. Okay, so the peace that Jesus offers is not, 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 not like any other peace that anybody else can offer. His peace produces internal calm in the midst of external chaos. Okay, all hell is broken loose all around you. But inside there is internal peace because you know that God is in control. We experience the peace of Christ when we trade in our fears of the storm for a healthy fear of reverence of Him. When we shift our gaze from the sea to the Savior, the sea of turbulence and chaos to the Savior who is peace. Paul told us to respond to God's peace the same way the storm responded to Jesus that night on the Sea of Galilee. He says in uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now think about that for a moment. If the peace of Christ, and this word rule here, it, it, it implies an umpire. An umpire is in control of the game, he controls everything in the game. And he says, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts to rule and to reign so that you will be at peace at all times, regardless of what's going on all around you. And so the Greek word used for control means to umpire. To umpire. In baseball, an umpire declares the way things are. Okay, he runs the game. Whatever he says should happen is what happens. Okay, because he's in charge. Likewise, whatever Jesus says about a matter, that's what it is. It's settled when he says, take heart, in John chapter 16, verse 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. Now we need to think about that. Whenever we go through those difficult trials and, and circumstances, we need to remember those words. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Your world may be falling apart, but you don't have to fall apart with it. That's what Jesus is saying. And we know what we're going through in our country right now, right? Everything's falling apart. And some believers are falling apart with it. Jesus said, no, that doesn't have to be the case. Okay, responding to Jesus' presence and power in your life allows you to go allows you to let go of your fear and replace it with his peace, his presence. That doesn't mean that we won't have problems. We are going to have problems. But it means that your problems won't have you. Okay, you're going to have problems, but your problems are not going to have you. You can rest comfortably on your cushion. Like Jesus rests comfortably on his cushion and was sound asleep, Sister Rosie. No stuff. He was in control even though he was sleeping. No, no, no. Okay, we got to close, but look at question five. Uh, in your everyday life, what does it mean to respond to Jesus' power? 
something to think about. In your everyday life, what does it mean to respond to Jesus' power? Look, look again at the, at the point at the top of the page. What's the point? He has power over all. He has power over all fears. And that's the point. That's the whole point of this lesson. He has power over all our fears. Look at the bottom of uh, page 36. And give us some things we can do here. Write it down. Make a list of the most pressing external problems that give rise to your internal fears. Pray over this list. This is something that you do at home. Pray over this list in connection with the truth found in John 16:33, where Jesus says, Take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what the verse says. Okay? So this is this is an assignment for us as we leave here. When you go home, whenever this fear comes to overwhelm you. Watch your words. Each day assess whether your speech is more focused on your problems or on Jesus. Who is the solution? Seek to speak more openly about Jesus. And then the third one is pray together. Consider ways you can encourage others in Christ. Encourage others to trust Christ. Look for evidence of people struggling with turmoil and invite them to pray with you for peace. Now we can always tell when a person is going through problems. You can tell by the facial expressions, right? Okay, let's wrap it up. You really don't know how much faith you have until your faith gets tested. Okay, remember that. Keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of life's storms. Ask for his help and trust him to get you to the other side. In other words, you ask for help and you trust him. You don't ask and then you go about your business doing whatever you feel like doing. You ask for his help and you trust him. Amen? Okay, that brings us to the end of our study. When we come back, we will be uh, looking at um, a death like no other.